0: we help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy
1: today's episode.
2: Hello and welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon here with my friend and colleague, John Kaplan, also known as Cap. How are you doing, Johnny Mac? Good to be with you again. Good Good to be with you, buddy. Cap, I have a very, very special guest today a powerhouse of a woman. Let me give you a small sample of her incredible background. She started a career as the founder of Skills Village, which was acquired by PeopleSoft. She was then CFO at Clearwire, which was a telecom company, raised $12 billion of capital and took it to a successful IPO. Then she was a CFO at King Digital, People that don't know that company, that's the creator of Candy Crush, where she took the company public and also completed a $5.9 billion acquisition by Activision. And now she's managing director at Madrona Ventures in Seattle, and she serves on the board of Hasbro, New Relic, and MongoDB. Cap, please say hello to my, and welcome my friend, Hope Cochran.
0: Hey Hope. Uh, it's great to meet you. I have to I have to be completely transparent. When John uh, when we talked about potential guests and and John brought up your name and I went and kind of, you know, dug into your background. I was just fascinated, which I want to ask you an opening question here in just a second. Um, I uh, then went back to my people and said, I have to update my LinkedIn profile. And and they said they asked me why, and I Showed them yours, and they said, "John, there's there's not enough words that we could put in there to make yours even <laughs> <laughs> close to the to the background of this woman." Yeah. Uh, so thank you, thank you for being with us. Uh, one of the things that I'm fascinated about, I'll start at the Uber level, and then you know we really want to dig into um, the the positioning of you know your financial background and, and which is just outstanding. But uh, Stanford um, economics and music major, and I believe a trained opera singer, um, can you kind of share us a little background? Like, what's that look like at Stanford? Like, economics, music, and a trained opera singer? What's that? How does that all come about?
1: Yes, thank you so much for having me on. It's so much fun to be able to just chat with friends and have this conversation. Um, you know, you'll, you started with looking at my LinkedIn profile and that it looked so great. I, I love LinkedIn because you can make it look great, right? There is a lot of twists and turns in that journey and a lot of learnings. And I want to use the word scars along the way. A lot of moments yeah. where, John McMahon, you referenced Skills Village, you know, yeah. we had a successful outcome to PeopleSoft, but my goodness, how many moments do I think we were like on the cliff and ready to jump off? Um, for mistakes that I made. So, you know, you look at those LinkedIn profiles and they look lovely and like this, this nice trajectory. And the truth is in the details and in the journey, which is um, a lot of, a lot of scars and learnings and now are a wise, uh, because of them. But it's been a really, I'm really grateful for the ride I've had. Um, and it did all start at Stanford. And, you know, I went to Stanford, I was so amazed to get in. First of all, I didn't ever expect I would get in. So that felt like a big win right there. Um, And of course, you don't go to Stanford thinking you're going to major in music. That is not the intention. Right. Um, and as my kids look at colleges and pick their majors, I'm not going to let them choose music as their major either. That just doesn't seem like the appropriate thing to do. But Really, when I look back, I think of econ as the degree that got me my interviews and gave the validation to the employers, but music is a lot of the things that I use in my everyday life. And the learnings that I gained through that music major and through that journey are really the skills that I put to work um, in my career. So I'm grateful for both the yin and the yang, the econ and the music together, I think They've, um, you know, helped me along the way to a tremendous capacity. But, you know, you are right. Like, I I was an opera singer and I spent a lot of moments on the stage. And when I say that those are the moments that prepared me for what I do today, you know, I think of uh, practice makes perfect. I mean, diligence yeah. and discipline. I can't imagine getting on stage and not knowing that aria through and through and how every italian word is spoken and the hours in the practice room right uh-huh. like the thought of getting up and not knowing that level of detail and messing up is petrifying so uh-huh. you know being always prepared is something that definitely i've taken through my journey i also just think of commanding a room you know and i you know what as you talk about women in business and being able to let your voice be heard, I spent a lot of hours on stage learning how to project and to command the space. And I think that has been helpful in my journey. And then the the ultimate is that something always goes wrong, right? Something always goes wrong. And how are you going to handle it? And how are you going to handle it with grace and like it was meant to be? Um, right. I think, John, you, you once referenced that I don't look stressed. <laughs> I, I am very stressed, but I think I've learned to manage it like in a way that looks like I'm not. Yeah. Um, which There's a lot used. going
2: on inside there, but you're not letting yeah. anybody see it.
0: Yeah. Hope, did you ever have to make a decision? Did it come down to make a decision to say, I'm going to go to with music or I'm going to go into finance? Did Was there ever a, a defining point in the career or did you just say, I'm going to do both and for as long as I can? How did that, how did it, how did it branch?
1: So I would say there was never a true defining moment in the sense that I wasn't that good, meaning I knew that I wasn't going to be a career opera singer. I, the amount of hours and work I had to put into it to be as good as my peers was, was clearly <laughs> a problem. Um, and I also knew that I loved business and that was just the natural trajectory for me. So I never had to make this big decision. I will say that I tried to do both all the way up until, you know, kids came into my life. Um, And so I was working at Deloitte and Touche all day. And then I would go to the opera hall at night and sing with the, you know, different theaters. And, you know, when you have babies, that just doesn't work all that well. So that was a moment that that, the actual theater performance um you know took a second second place but i still sang a lot and i still do today
2: very cool very cool when you were at Deloitte and Touche Hope how did you decide okay I'm gonna go start my own company what was the motivator there
1: yeah so that's you know Deloitte and Touche So I am so grateful for that start in my journey. I think it teaches you a tremendous amount as a young professional, time management. You see a lot of different places. They give you a lot of responsibility early. So just a great place to start. But one of the things I figured out by year two is that my calendar was pretty much the same every year, meaning I was doing the same clients. Um, And I'm a person that gets antsy and I get a little bored and I want to do something new. So one of the uh, defining moments at Deloitte was I was asked, um, or actually I wasn't asked, I heard they were starting a new practice in Slovenia, and they were asking some of the best in class if they were interested in going to live there and get this practice going, Mm. and I wasn't asked, and I was, according to what I knew, ranked the highest in my cohort. And I was frustrated that I wasn't asked. And so I went in and I tried to handle it gently and nicely. But I said, you know, I'm hearing this is happening. Why why didn't anyone approach me? And the answer was, oh, well, you're the only one in your group that's married. Wow. And um, so they thought that I wouldn't be interested in going. And I looked at her, I said, I'm very interested and I would like to go. And within like five minutes, I'd committed myself to moving to Ljubljana, um, which... <laughs> <laughs> I then had to call my husband and let him know I had done that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) know, was he excited
2: about it? Was he excited about it? He has
1: been incredibly supportive my entire journey as I have been with his. So he was like, "Okay," and he was doing a startup in San Francisco, and so there was a lot going on there. Um, But. You know, it was the first time I had experienced someone making a decision for me based on, Mm. you know, an extraneous situation in my life. So to your point, I always go for the unexpected, the new thing. So I went to uh, Slovenia for a year. I came back. I knew I didn't want to go back and do what I was doing previously. And that led to a journey of exploring the world of software in the Silicon Valley and you know, really wanting to be on that entrepreneurial journey, and I've always been driven that way, and I've always had that curiosity and wanting to explore a new things. So yes, we started Skills Village. Um, did it without fear. Like I, I look back, and I'm like, why wasn't I worried? Um, you know, I set up desks and phones and sorted all that out, and then we we built the company, we raised some funds, and. Um, we were fortunate that it really fit PeopleSoft's trajectory, and, and ended up, you know, being part of the PeopleSoft culture again.
2: Right. How does your really financial so you background? Didn't know what you didn't know, right? You didn't know what you didn't know, so you just went yeah. headstrong into it, no I fear. Didn't
1: know what I didn't know? I, I always say that the first venture capital money I raised, and I remember it so vividly. I had a gentleman who put a term sheet in front of me. And there were all these words that I'd never heard of before. And I would just tell anyone that's raising money, these words are a different world and a different vocabulary, but they're actually quite rational and they make sense. You just have to know the words. So I went into the bathroom and called my lawyer and (laughs) said, I need to learn what these words mean because I have to go negotiate this thing. And like Uh I scribbled, 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 and I came back out trying to look all like I knew my stuff.
0: (laughs) That was one of the topics we wanted to talk to you about. That's probably a good place to dive in. You know, in today's world, the last few years, there's been so much money on the sidelines and so much money available. And a lot of our friends that are running companies, there's this, you know, pressure sometimes to take money. Um, Like, can you kind of give us that perspective of when, how did you know was the right time to take money? What were some big considerations? Uh, valuation, dilution, uh, all that experience. What did you learn through that? And what and what advice would you give?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and I have, because of my career in finance, I have been in a situation to raise lots of money. I think you mentioned twelve billion with Skills Village. I think overall, I've probably raised fourteen billion in different environments and different structures. And I have seen the ups and downs of the markets. Um, And, you know, we haven't had a down in the market in a long time. Now, maybe we're having that now. Mm. But um, there's a lot of finance leaders and professionals out there who haven't experienced a downturn. And um, I have experienced many or at least, you know, several. And you watch the spigot turn off in a heartbeat. Mm. And so I am very mindful of markets. And I am very mindful that when a market is open, I figure out how to get money. Mm, Um, Because when the market turns off and that's when you need money, it's a rough spot. And so I get money when I can, is the answer. I am not stingy about dilution uh, because if we're going to build something, it will resolve itself. You have to have a growth mindset. And then I take really good care of that money.
2: Yeah, right. So what you're saying is err on the side of safety because you never know when the spigot can turn off. So take maybe a little bit more than you thought you had to. I mean, the rounds that we're seeing now used to be what you'd see when some companies would go public 10 years ago. Now you're seeing rounds that are even bigger than that. So, but I I think they know that they're going to grow really fast too. So they're scaling
1: right? With valuations that are tremendous, right? And so i have fortunate to be involved with a few of those private companies that are getting what I would consider these mega rounds. And my message to them has been, take the money, but then let's look at the trajectory to grow into that valuation. Because right. those valuations are putting those companies in a different category. Like, you can't right. be acquired by a certain group of companies. You're you know, you've put yourself in a different echelon. You're either going to get acquired by someone really big who can acquire you, or you're going to go IPO. And we're probably not ready yet, so we we need to make that money last and grow into that valuation. But by all means, take the money.
2: Yeah, but in many startups, you know, you're typically these days dealing with the tech founder, and yeah. maybe you're not the only VC around the table. And you have a lot of experience on when the money turns off and how to, you know, all about dilution and stuff. But maybe some other people are saying, "Take less." How do you guide the the CEO during that during that journey?
1: It's always a collaborative conversation. Um, so there's never one formula for that. But often, what we've seen in these mega rounds is that the valuation. Supports the amount of money that's being brought in from a dilution perspective, so it's a fairly healthy conversation. Mm. Meaning, we're not diluting too much to bring in that value, and um, and so you know, it's it's a discussion, and we work through it. But then I'm always quick to stop talking about how much money are we taking in, and what is the plan, and what's our frame of mind of what right. we're doing with it. Meaning I don't want, what I want to see is that money is being applied to areas of growth levers, right? So if we can spend more money and get more users or more, you know, adoption of the product, that makes a lot of sense. If our issue in going to market is that the product needs more features and that's going to unlock growth, let's put the money there. But let's be very mindful of where we're going to invest and spend so we can spur on that growth. And then the minute we've spent there, let's protect the money to make it last a longer trajectory so we can grow into those valuations.
0: Right. Pope, well, have like, you ever had an example where you actually uh, suggested to take less money, not not take the money, but to take less money? And what were the what were the characteristics of that scenario where you advise somebody to take less money? And it's probably more not from your VC perspective, but from maybe from your CFO perspective. Like, what are some of the things that you got to balance when you're on the taking the money side?
1: Yeah, the the times I can think of where we turned money down, I want to yeah. say, is based on who it was coming from. So very mindful of who you're partnering with from a cap table perspective, from an ownership perspective, and very mindful of their objectives and what they want. Mm -hmm. And is it going to be distracting? Is it going to be helpful? And those are the moments that we have said, no, thank you. We're going to stick with this structure or this amount of money.
2: Yeah, right. I hope is if we turn towards you being a CFO and you you know you're at a telecom company you're at a mobile games company you basically at a software company how different was it to be able to forecast for the quarters in those different types of companies sure. were there was it kind of basically the same or was it completely different in those different types of companies
1: it was completely different. And I'm incredibly jealous of these CFOs and these SaaS companies now, where it's much more predictable. Um, you know, because I was in the days of software, the olden days, when we were in perpetual license and John right. you probably were there with me, um, you know, and all your deals are coming in the last five days of the quarter. We would have three calls a day, making sure the contracts got processed, not knowing where your quarter was going to end. I don't know if I'm resonating with you at all.
2: (laughs) Oh, 130%. So we have a lot of stories. Scars, those scars, those are our scars. Those are scars, for sure.
1: So that perpetual license uh, method was challenging and the forecasting was hard. And, um, you know, I think of our QBRs or our monthly meetups trying to forecast how the deals were going to come through and what we were telling the street. It was very unpredictable, right? Um, And then you go to telecom, which was selling to consumers. It had a little bit more of a SaaS profile in the sense that, you know, we knew customer retention. Mm. So that was a little bit more predictable. Um, And you had a mass market to work with. So you had some levers in regards to customer acquisition. And then you go to mobile gaming. and actually. Interesting thing about mobile gaming is that once a game gets traction, it actually is very predictable. Really? So we really were much more, I always say we had as many data scientists as we had game developers. And Candy Crush was truly and still is a phenomenon of volume. And so you really can analyze the data and get pretty good at predicting. What's hard to predict is a new game. So, you know, you don't know what type of traction you're going to get. You do testing and all the things ahead of time, but it's really hard to know exactly how it's going to be adopted once it's truly launched. And so those first six months of the game tend to be unpredictable. But if you can get volume and virality, then it tends to be, you know, much more predictable and understandable. You know, when I was at King, mobile gaming was relatively young and new and i spent a lot of time talking to wall street about the fact that if you can get a certain amount of activity or volume or engagement in your game you were highly predictable and you would stay big for a long time so you know at that point candy crush or king was making about 2 billion in revenue a year wow. from these family of games and i was you know trying to make people understand that this added a lot of predictability to the game and that it would be in the top 10 for years and years. And very few people actually believed me because there was very little history to prove that out. So I understand. But today, like I still check and it's still in the top 10 and it's very very satisfying to me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. But it almost seems hard to, that there is a, some sort of predictable model when a game like that doesn't do anything for 6 months and then literally overnight seems like it explodes. But I guess there are models out there that model that type of behavior and virality as you as you spoke. Yeah,
1: they usually it's more that they <coughs> should explode pretty quickly and then you don't know the retention. Mm. So the first 6 months you're learning because how how was it accepted on the market and then how long do the users continue to play and so that's what you're learning and and trying to understand
0: and the difference in the impact of social media today you know maybe in the old days I don't know it's just like you'd see something in the old days of Facebook somebody was playing you know a game or what have you now it's like and it just happened with me and my family and I'm 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 behind the times a little bit, but everybody's playing this wordle thing, I think is the, is the one. Right. And, and, and like John just said, all of a sudden it has been thrust upon me to, it's like it's in my home now and people are sending me links to it to, and I haven't, I haven't figured it all out yet, but it's just the, the impact on social media in the last few years about how it, accelerates into the marketplace, there's just so many more avenues to get awareness around stuff like that.
1: Yeah, gaming continues to evolve. And one of the things I love about gaming is I do feel like they're on the edge of new business models, of new yeah. tech. And so I learn a lot by continually being in that sector. But you know, today, it's very much creator-led. So yeah. when you think about user-generated content. Content you think of Roblox, Minecraft, Rec Room, mm. these areas where people can come together as a community and really build something together and have fun together. And you know now we use the term the metaverse, um, but truly the metaverse has been around for a while. It now just has a name. Yeah. Um, but this this ability to be social together within a game, I think, is really the next next generation
0: well john told me that he can't wait for this technology to to where he doesn't even have to leave his house and he can go have coffee with people and he does and he can have the avatar and are we there yet hope we're pretty close aren't we
1: it is possible it's yeah. not really that widely adopted yet um, yeah. but it is all there
0: I'm trying to get him out of his house, so let, let's hope right, he doesn't he adopt that. Now. Hey, I got a hey. quick question for you. I'm dying to ask this because um, in, in my experience, the balance of predictability, we have a lot of sales professionals and CROs and sellers and, and this, this, this importance of the forecast. Number one, why it's so important, but then balancing predictability and overachievement has always been a very difficult conversation and so could you kind of share with us your experience and the advice that you've given people around you know wanting to overachieve a number and but also wanting to be very predictable like what's been what's been your experience or your advice in that we have scars on that as well
1: yes we sure. all do and i always say i think this is very much due to being in the seat of the cfo Overachievement's great, but truly, I want it to be accurate. Right. This is my objective. Like, I don't want to be under. I don't want to be over. I want to be as close to the accuracy as I possibly can. And, you know, when you think about those monthly meetups and we go through the pipeline and we review the deals, um, I just hope and I want to establish the ability for everyone to be as transparent and honest as they can and to take the game playing out of it i know that's hard and i know that there's a lot of reasons why the game playing comes in people have career ambitions etc but that's the moment where we can all help each other we've got seasoned sales folks in the room that can read a deal and say have you met with these you know folks in the in the deal that can help you push it through We've got, you know, folks like myself who've seen a lot of contract language. I could help you think through different creative ways to structure a contract that would work both for the financial and the sales folks. So it is a moment to be as honest and transparent as possible so we can all get to the right answer. Um, And I go for accuracy.
0: How about the balancing of the budget? Like this one has always been difficult for me. The balancing of the budget, which is so critical to the outcome and a CFO can look at that sometimes, my experience and say, okay, the number's not high enough. therefore um, you know you need to do you're going to overachieve it and that's there's consequences of that because we could grow, we could fund a little bit easier. But then also the the knowing that you know if you want a better valuation, you have to grow and the budget that you put together, you need to stretch it a little bit. What has been your? What's your operating rhythm around that? And the, the when you see plans, what advice do you give people on how to balance that? Because I tell you that topic is coming up a lot for me lately.
1: Yeah. And lately, really oh. what the markets have valued is growth, right? Yeah. So you have to be mindful about what we're looking at in terms of the markets, as well as the strength of the balance sheet. Mm. So Assuming that the company has a good cash balance and we're not dealing with debt or you know areas of, of losing too much cash, clearly we want to propel growth. And you know, when I think about the role of the CFO, we are the area that all constraints come into us. <laughs> you know, we're trying to balance like how the balance sheet needs to look with how much we can spend, which how can we get that growth metric? And really it's a big puzzle that all needs to fit together. So as I look to invest or spend dollars, I wanna spend dollars in areas that will give me healthy growth. And by healthy, I mean, it makes sense. Like I'm not gonna throw a bunch of money at marketing and sales that lead to diminishing returns. But if I can put money to work in marketing and sales, that's going to propel the growth, then that makes sense. So you're constantly looking at how you can balance those. But you know, in certain companies today, they're at the beginning of their growth trajectory and they want to make sure they obtain the users now so that in the future, you look at the LTV of those customers and those dollars you spend to gain the users now really makes sense from a long-term perspective in the company.
2: Right, there's always big trade-offs there. The CF, good CFOs that I've seen, you bring them something that says, I think we could you know, sell more or salespeople could be more pr- productive if we had this. And then the good CFOs say, say okay, I hear you. That's going to cost us X. Let me go back and see what trade-offs are. And they come back and they say, here's some things that you may have to give up in order to get that, right? And um, then it becomes like a really good discussion between the CFO and the top salespeople or, or the marketing peoples and versus just, no, like we're not going to change. It has Absolutely. to be collaborative, as you said.
1: I view, yeah. really view the role as the CFO, as the one that is sitting next to the CEO and all the visions and ideas that are coming from there. The sales folks saying, you know, I could sell more if we had this product feature You know, they have to be the ears of all of the things that they're hearing in the company and then synthesize it into a plan that is balanced and can work. Um, I really tried hard and still do to never say no. Mm. That is not part of the vocabulary. The vocabulary is interesting. Let's talk through what that looks like and let me go back and do some work on it.
0: So, Dr. No is a misnomer i was using that phrase <laughs> totally wrong in my career dr no is not true or ebenezer
2: we used to call it <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah
1: it <laughs> I probably had so- i think that's a lot of the companies i've been involved in right like yeah. i tend to gravitate towards high growth situations yeah um and so that is the mindset now in other industries you know it's it can be very different so i don't want to
2: but isn't it also hope that a lot of, and this is where you might be able to help educate the audience, is if someone inside your company wants to approach the CFO, what's the best way to approach the CFO with some sort of trade offs that they'd like to make? Like, what should they be prepared to discuss with you versus I just need this and you got to give it to me?
1: I would view that it should be a discussion, first and foremost. So I hope my door is always open. I was laughing the other day that now I'm a venture capitalist, and it's the first time in my career I've ever had an office. I've always been out on the floor in cubes, um, regardless of my title. And I want to be very approachable and have those discussions. Right. I would never respond well to someone coming up and telling me what we had to do. Mm. But I have always try and respond well to when someone has, hey, can we talk about an idea I have? And let's flesh that out together.
2: Now, was- Hope, how many external salespeople outside the company that you were in when you were a CFO, how many of them actually reached out to you for advice or, you know, or even came to you with a cost justification on a project that they were trying to work on internally and asked for your advice? Very few. Amazing, right? Yeah. So if there are salespeople out there and they're gonna approach an external or potential customer CFO, especially with a cost justification. So they lay a cost justification down on your table and they get, 10 minutes of your time, lay it down. They say, I think it's a great cost justification. I've been working on it for three months. Where does your eye go? What are the types of things that you want information on?
1: Yeah, so again, based on the environment that I've grown up in, which is usually a growth oriented situation, I do not respond well personally to cost justifications. Um, I really respond well to solutions. So usually I'm needing to upgrade a system or implement a new solution because my company has grown from 1,000 employees to 2,000 employees in a year and a half, and my current systems are broken. And so as a CFO, my most important thing is that my numbers are right, and I can do that by making sure my systems and processes keep up with the size of the organization. And um, so I'm constantly ensuring that my systems are, I want to say ahead, but I'm going to change that to not too far behind because <laughs> it's really hard to keep them ahead, but right. not too far behind my growth trajectory. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: so I am constantly trying to upgrade the back office and the world of the CFO to ensure that, Processes are being done the same around the world that um, I have the ability to scale. So those are the types of solutions that I really respond well to. And um, they're hard. So I also appreciate, number one, not only a solution message, but also a, and we can do this for you with some sort of low touch or not complicated situation because mm-hmm. <laughs> I just have so many balls in the air.
0: Yeah, sure. Hey, Johnny, let me follow up on this one. Go it. I go for it. the, um, cause it's, I, I've got some advice a long time ago and it's worked pretty well, but I'd like to really ask somebody that I interact with on this. They said, go early to the financial person and get advice versus go late and get critiqued, which really piggybacks on what you said, Hope, is I I don't I do not like to be approached when you're telling me, you know, you're already down the pipe on something and I have to do something, or you're trying to convince me to do something. Is it true? Do you really feel like you're approachable or or CFOs are approachable early for advice uh versus um, you know, versus getting critiqued? Because we try to tell salespeople, if you go early, you can get advice and say, if something does come across your desk, hope, what are the minimal things it's going to have to have? Or what are the minimal things that are going to have to be in place for you to even evaluate something? Does that advice still ring true for you?
1: So a couple things. I, first of all, want to make sure we're clear that before we were talking about internal salespeople approaching me with ideas, always available for that. And now we've transitioned to external sales folks coming to the CFO. And I would say that the most important thing is I probably don't have the capacity for a bunch of individual external sales folks to approach me. Um, In my role, I've always had like a business ops person who has kind of the master view of all of the solutions that we're working on and that they all need to integrate together. And I worry that I know not enough <laughs> to like, if I end up, end up talking about individual point solutions, I'm going to mess up the master plan. And so I really rely on that business ops person in my organization to have the full picture and how the solutions work together and you know interact together and are driving us in a direction. So I heavily rely on that role. Now, does that mean I won't have conversations with individual sales reps? Of course I will, but I want it to be within the context of our broader vision.
0: And so so it sounds like the better advice is build your champions as a seller, build your champions with the people inside of that company and strongly encourage that process to go to financial people early. So now it's internal people going to internal people early to have the conversation versus just picking up the phone without that context and trying to reach somebody like a CFO. Does that resonate better for you?
1: It does. And I will say that you know my last few companies, I've had the same business ops person come with me, which I've been very fortunate. She's amazing. I, I will do whatever she tells me to do. So <laughs> that,
2: right. that also she's keeping you informed about these discussions that are going on internally and some of the ones that are starting to take priority. She's informing you that. So you're not caught off guard, that here's some decisions the company thinks that they're getting ready to make or certain purchases. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: That's right. We sit together with a master spreadsheet, master plan on a regular cadence and look at all the different projects that are in flight and who she's evaluating for those, uh, you know, and then they'll come to me when we're in decision mode. But, you know, I definitely look to her for guidance as to where we're going.
0: Right. Hope, how about, we? I've had a lot of conversations recently in the last, you know, couple of years with companies that are trying to, and, and in my case, it's probably more early stage companies trying to pick the right CFO. and I've really been intrigued by the conversation because I think people are doing the right things and really thinking about that, making sure you have the right CFO for the right stage of a company uh, or what have you. What um, advice could you give to our listeners that maybe are you know early stage companies that are thinking about, you know, how to pick the right CFO? Do you have some advice there?
1: It is definitely stage driven, right? Um, and you really need to be mindful of what is needed. I think sometimes people get ahead of themselves with mm-hmm. what they're looking for. When you know you're a series B company and you just need a lot of block and tackling, those are incredibly valuable people and they can add a lot of value at that stage. Um, and then you get into the growth mindset, you know, where they're like maybe getting ready to go public. And that's a different DNA. One of the things that I'm I'm currently doing right now is I'm running a panel of a bunch of CFOs that have been with a company that was private for a long time and then took it public.
2: Mm-hmm. What is
1: the difference in managing a company as a public CFO versus a private? Um, it's It's not very glamorous, I'll tell you. Public company CFO work is, you know, you always wonder why did we do this. Um, so it requires a different skill set, I think. Um, and then as companies get bigger and more mature, I just go back to the tried and true of every leader. You really become more focused on people. The bigger the organization, you spend more and more time on people. And by people, what I mean is, how much time are you spending on recruiting? How much time are you spending laying out goals and objectives and meeting with your folks so they understand the goals and objectives? How much time are you you know, spending making sure there's career development going on? So, you know, as you as companies get bigger and the role gets broader, meaning you have more people in your organization, it really comes down to people management.
2: Yeah. I hope you're on, you know, private boards. You're on, you know, three public company boards, you know, in general, just for the audience in general, some people may not know, well, what does a board member really do? So could you just in general terms, like educate the audience as to what a board member does?
1: Yeah, I, I think in one of my board meetings, John, that you happen to be in, I loved when one of our fellow board members said, you know, I know I've done a good job when the CEO writes down what I say.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. well, they, I don't think they can always be a hundred percent confident that the CEO actually wrote down what they said or wrote something else.
1: They wrote something down, right? <laughs>
2: right? Maybe to get them off their back. So,
1: yeah, I do think there's quite a difference in a private company board versus a public company board, and totally. um, and the roles and what we actually do. But in general, I strive, and I think all board members strive to be useful. And what does that mean in the different contexts? And you know, when I think about my public company boards, you know, there's a lot of what I wouldn't call governance uh, that has to be done. We're basically there to be a voice of the shareholders um, and to make sure the company is running appropriately. But beyond that. You know, we're a group of individuals that all have varied backgrounds. One of the things I think people don't realize about a board is we're very careful in crafting a team of people that all bring different expertise to the table. That's a good point. And I make sure when I join a board that that is the construct. And then I think, okay, my swim lane is X. And it's not that I'm going to only stay in my swim lane, but at least I know that that is where I can dive in and add value. So, you know, clearly the obvious swim lane for me is audit committee and getting into the seat, the world of the CFO now, and in some other areas, I've got other lanes that I dive into as well, but I really try and spend extra time in those areas that I know and can bring up and surface to the board level for my other board members uh, to get a feel for what's happening in that area of the business. And I appreciate my other board members do the same in their swim lanes as well. And so it really brings a nice, wholehearted look as to what the company, um, you know, is doing in all the different areas. Hey, Johnny,
0: I've
2: seen uh, Hope are the ones that, to your point, where, you know, there's somebody for marketing, there's somebody for sales, somebody for finance, somebody for engineering. And as you talked about, then people stay in their swim lanes and kind of look towards, the expert to help men not only mentor the company but raise any major issues of that discipline inside the company that's it right
1: well. it's it's really an important thing at the board that you know when i look across boards that it's structured that way and i always tell people that are looking for board positions board recs or board openings are very specific and you know you might get turned down for a board position um, for very specific reasons, meaning you, you're a fabulous person with an amazing career, but it just doesn't fit the exact construct of what that team needs.
0: Correct. Um, yeah. What I wanted to follow up on also, Hope, is um, some of the feedback that I get is that people, especially newer board members, are they misunderstand or. Um, they don't appreciate how much time it actually takes. And I know that you're on different committees, Would you kind of give us a little insight into uh, the actual amount of time preparation, you know, to do it right. Um, the, the amount of time that it actually takes, would you share Nobody with us spends a little bit more
2: of, time than an audit chair and hope uh, yeah. has that crown. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. so there's a lot of people get allured. and says, Hey, I, you know, I'm going to be a board member. And then, boom, you're actually a board member, and the amount of time that it takes is sometimes
2: overwhelming. So, hope maybe just a little on, like, what an audit chair does, and then, like, to John's question, the time that it takes. Yeah.
1: So, um, I really love being the audit chair, which I think makes me unique. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) Yes. That was a very surprising response. Okay.
1: I love it because it's the language I speak, and I would do the work anyways. Because it's like I understand SEC filings. I understand 10 Ks and 10Q's, and it gives me I can read them in such that it gives me an insight into the company. Yeah. So I would be doing that work if I wasn't the chair or not. So I mm. might as well just do it. Um, and so the audit committee, in general boards, you know we have our board group, and then we have committees. And committees, the standing committees are compensation committees, audit committee, and then nomination and governance committee. And so as a board member, you serve on the board, but also within the committees. And um, I really say that the work is done in the committees. This mm-hmm. is where you actually feel like you get your hands dirty and you get into things. And um, and then we hopefully are able to take that work out of the boardroom and do strategy in the boardroom. That's That's the intent. Yeah. Um, in an audit committee, we would be making sure that the financials have integrity, that the processes are happening appropriately, and um, internal controls are working. And then one of the things that I try and add into all of my audit committees is this look at systems. And we do this, I wouldn't say, at Mongo incredibly well, where we're constantly monitoring how healthy our systems are in relationship to our growth and volume and where we need to be focused on those for the integrity of the financials ultimately, but also so that the company is running smoothly and we don't get behind. Once you get behind on systems, it's just so wow. hard. To get yeah, up, it hurts right? everyone. Yeah. So that's not a normal thing in the audit committee, but because I've been at growth companies and my board roles are with growth companies. I view it as a key element to ensuring that the financials have integrity and will continue to have integrity.
2: Yeah. Now, Hope, you're involved in helping prospective women become corporate board members. You want to talk a little bit about your involvement in the Onboarding Women program?
1: Yeah, I really love this program. You know, you get involved with things and you want to know that they have impact. And um, this one has been a joy to spearhead and be involved in, and then very satisfying to see that it's actually working and there's results. So I've really been grateful. Um, Onboarding women is a group we're pretty locally focused. So I live in Seattle. And so it's fairly focused in the Seattle region. And that's so we can get together and get to know each other. But we choose about 30 to 40 women a year and put them through a program to just educate them on what is in the boardroom. What I find in the Seattle region is we've got some amazing companies. We've got Amazon. We've got Microsoft, these huge companies. But very few folks from those companies actually end up in the boardroom because they just can't. Right. So they're they're incredibly talented executives that are managing huge organizations, but they just don't understand what is actually happening in the boardroom. So that we,
2: what you meant by can't that they can't is that they're not it's not that they're not allowed to do it because they work at Microsoft. It's just that the organization's that too big. Yeah.
1: Well yeah the organization's too big. I mean at Microsoft you're gonna have your top executives in the boardroom but it's the biggest corporation in the world. So you've yeah. got okay, whole got divisions you. that you know don't go into the boardroom, but are managing more people than I've ever managed in my career. Like they've got so much more experience. So onboarding room women really focuses on um, making sure they're board ready, meaning that they would speak the language in an interview. They would understand the responsibility. And um, we've now been running it for about five years. Uh, Madrona, I lead it from Madrona. Perspective, my venture capital firm, and then I also co-sponsor it with Deloitte and Touche and Spencer Stewart and Cascadia Bank. Oh wow! Um, and you know, to this point, I think we've had about 150 women go through the program, and I think we've had about 70 board placements. Wow! Um, which is oh,
2: incredible!
1: It's and really so exciting. We don't actually
2: solicit. You yeah, we them? don't
1: do the placements themselves. Oh, you um, don't. We don't. Basically, these are talented women. So there we go. That's one thing. But I also think that getting your first board role is like any new role. Like if no one wants to hire you for the first time.
0: Right.
1: So I get a tremendous amount of inbound for board roles. I'm a little busy right now. So I take every recruiter call and say, well, let me see if I can send you some candidates and so then I go through my onboarding women list and send them maybe five folks that I think would be helpful. And we all do that. We have a group of mentors associated with the program. We've got about 30 mentors and we all take that responsibility. And I think it's that viral effect and us all knowing each other that's really propelled it forward.
2: Wow, How does
0: great. somebody get into the program, Hope? And, and first question. Second question. Um, are there pro if it's regional, are there programs like it around the country? If not, why not? And how might that, how might the listeners be able to tap into some of that experience from you?
1: Yeah, it's very grassroots. Um, it really was born out of some leaders in the Seattle region coming together And being mindful that Washington state actually had a really low percentage of women on public boards, Um, low in general, but also low compared to the nation and saying we needed to impact that. And so that has been the purpose of the program and how it was born. And in terms of how to apply, we have a website onboardingwomen.org, And you can apply through that. You can also email any of us and we nominate you. Um it's pretty unscientific, <laughs> yeah, but um, we really try and and make sure that we're focused on nominees that we do think are board ready. So that's one of our criteria. In terms Any other, of other oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, please. Uh, yeah, other organizations, there are a lot all over the country, and they they all have their different flavor. Um, I think of Athena Alliance, I think of BoardList, um, they, they're all, there's a several in New York um, that have mm. sprouted up. So there are several initiatives and it's great to see the energy and focus behind this.
0: Awesome. Well done. Well done. Johnny, are we, uh, do you, do you wanna do want to do a recap? I just ask
2: you one g- kind of general question, you know. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you ever got that most people don't commonly hear? Is there thing that comes to mind?
1: Okay, let's give it a category like career advice.
2: Sure, let's do okay. it. All right.
1: <laughs> um, I would say take a risk.
2: Yes, especially early on.
1: Take a risk. Yes. When I think of the big movements in my career, they've been when I've jumped, when I've taken a risk, when I've been nervous. I don't think I've ever taken a job that I felt like I was qualified for. Mm. Um, Whenever it pushed me and made me uncomfortable, I knew that that was the right job.
0: Right.
1: Um, And then I always, maybe this is a little bit of my CFO mindset, put myself in the mindset of okay what happens if I fail? Hmm. And usually that's okay.
2: Yeah. Right.
1: Like once I really envision what failing could look like, it's not that bad.
2: No, but that fear of failure can really drive you also. Right. So yes. this leap, I think, cause I've done it myself. I've taken this leap when everybody else around me tells me logically you're making really a big mistake, but my gut just, and something inside me tells me I got to go. And then I go, and now I'm there. (laughs) And then this giant fear of failure also comes over me too. Like, you know, we we really got to step our game up. So sounds like, you know, same thing for you.
1: And I often tell that to folks that I mentor or that work for me in some respect, even though I wouldn't want to lose them in my organization. Mm. I still think that for them, sometimes taking that leap is the best thing they can do.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Hope um we can't thank you enough for spending time with us. I was so excited when John brought you up and I haven't met you before. So it's been a pleasure to meet you and just looking at your incredibly uh diverse background and and I think it's just been a, a real joy. I'm just going to highlight some uh of the Recap some of the things that I heard you say. And then at the end, if you're up for it, we have kind of like like rapid fire questions. uh, We just want to ask you and they're they're pretty simple, but people tend to to really love the uh, love to hear what you have to say on those. So what I heard you say is, um, you know, uh, in today's environment, take the money, but have a plan. On how to use the money. Don't overthink taking the money. Overthink the plan about using the money and using it effectively for growth levers. I heard you talk about predictability and really focusing on your key takeaway is being accurate is the, is the, is the best thing about forecasting. Best advice you could give was about being accurate. You talked about solutions versus cost justification. And I thought the way that you did that was really, really insightful for me. Um, being a board member and really kind of not staying in your lane, but owning your lane. And, uh, that was a great takeaway for me. And then the last thing, which I really am glad that we had a chance to talk about was this work that you're doing with onboarding women. And, uh, and there are other organizations, Rachel will capture those. Our team will capture those. We'll put them in the show notes for people. Um, and I think those are just great avenues today to get acceleration for a lot of talented, uh, women out there that are, uh, looking for ways to, um, you know, accelerate those opportunities. So I I hope that we have the opportunity to share that as well. Last thing you said was taking a risk and our team kind of highlighted it in the phrase that said, go for the unexpected and it's okay to fail, which I think is, uh, uh, which is a, a lot of the confidence and conviction that you have. Uh, uh, are you ready for some rapid fire questions?
1: I'm nervous. So I'm ready. No,
0: they're easy. They're easy. It's a, it's a fun note to end on. Uh, what is your ideal day off of work?
1: Mm, to be at the barn with horses.
0: Awesome. Awesome. How about a favorite meal?
1: Pizza.
2: That's the that's a common one, Johnny. Very common. What type of pizza? Just plain cheese?
1: You know, yes, but maybe pepperoni, but pretty basic.
0: Come on, you're up in the Pacific Northwest. They got white pizza. They got all kind of stuff no, going on up but, there.
1: Yeah, there was there was a period in my life due to babies that I couldn't eat pizza, and I did not realize how much I missed it.
0: Yeah, is that the like the cheese the process? I got my my children are having children now and there's all kinds of things I'm learning about. There's cheeses and stuff you can't eat, right?
1: There's that, but mine was more like colicky babies.
0: Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm evolving. I'm evolving.
2: All right. Favorite movie.
1: God's must be crazy
2: gods must be crazy do you know that one johnny i do not know that one but i'm i'm gonna
1: it's go an it. old one really really what cool. it is,
0: give us the give it don't give away the punchline but give us the heads up like
1: it all has to do interest. with what? a tribe in the sahara and a coke bottle that comes oh out. i
0: have seen that i have seen that is it a movie or is it a documentary like it's kind it's of yeah tough. okay i have seen i i remember that i'll go back and, and they check fight it over again. the coke bottle all right, so this this one is really appropriate for you, and I might ask a little variation. Best concert you've ever been to?
1: Hmm. I want to say the Marriage of Figaro, but that's not a concert.
0: That's okay. That's okay. I'll, i I. Uh, and then how about a favorite singer? This is a this is high category
2: for you.
1: Yeah. It's it's all Broadway. I'm all Broadway.
2: That's okay. Oh, you like going to the plays, like going to theater.
1: I am. A, yes. I'm a theater junkie. Yeah. I well. could listen to. Yeah. Theater all day.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Johnny wrap up with your goodbyes and uh, hope oh. I so, so grateful for you for taking the time. I know you got a busy schedule and uh, we're, we're just so grateful for you spending the time. Huge value yeah, add. Thank, thank you.
2: Thank you. Can't thank you enough for joining us. And it, I know for the audience, this is going to be very, very valuable. So thank you so much. I appreciate well, it.
1: Well, I certainly learned a tremendous amount from you all. And it was a great way to start my day. So thank there
2: you. you right. Awesome. Thanks, so um,
0: And right. thank you. And thank you all for listening to Revenue Builder. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.